look back at our past, you're going to see that there are a lot more insect-borne diseases, mosquito-borne diseases like malaria, dengue fever, or yellow fever. I've, many of these are major epidemics. They're going to be that way again. Could we have another Spanish flu? And if we did have something that transmitted quickly between folks that were just nearby each other, but sort of through the air. I mean, we have abilities to get from one side of the world to the other, you know, within just a short period of time. So people get on planes who don't know they're sick. And now the whole plane is sick, but they don't know they're sick either. And then they might get on other planes or, you know, just I, I could see a worldwide problem if we have something that's very strong. Hey guys, welcome to The Survival Show podcast with Craig and me, David, where it's our job to take you step-by-step through the mindset, skills, tactics, and gear you need to survive almost any crisis, emergency, or disaster, and show you how to use the lessons you learned today to thrive in your life tomorrow. Hey guys, and it's our mission to help you progressively increase your survival IQ so you can leave out of here better prepared at the end of the show than you were at the beginning. And coming up next, we're going to be talking about survival first aid in medicine with Dr. Joe and Nurse Amy Alton, the authors of several best-selling books, including the Survival Medicine Handbook, the host of the Survival Medicine Podcast, and the founders of doomandbloom.net. And today we're going to be covering a wide range of topics that we've really not covered, Craig, in our previous podcasts on first aid, including how to become a medically prepared person ready for any disaster, what medical emergencies you need to be prepared for in a worst-case scenario disaster, how to prepare for an epidemic, and a lot more. Plus, we'll put Joe and Amy on the hot seat, and we'll ask them some lightning round questions, which is always a blast. Sounds fantastic. Before we get into all this, everybody, I want to be sure and thank our faithful sponsor, the Sportsman's Guide. With summer here, there's no better place to get your camping, fishing, boating, grilling, and any outdoor gear than the Sportsman's Guide. I just looked over there, and the Sportsman's Guide has a sweet bunch of deals, including a limited-time special where you can get up to 50% off during their red, white, and blue blowout sale. For example, I've been teaching classes in an area where we need some good lanterns. So I hopped on over to the Sportsman's Guide and picked up a new lantern. I have another one that I've been using for 20 years. Got the new one in. Looks very similar, but it's a lot more efficient and all that kind of good stuff. Fantastic buy for me over on the Sportsman's Guide. So everyone, listen to me. Let the folks over the Sportsman's Guide know we sent you and grab some deals on the outdoor gear you need. Use the link in the podcast description you see below or go to the survivalshow.com forward slash guide and that lets them know that you're getting connected through us and that helps them, that helps us, and that helps you. All right, thanks, Craig. So you ready to get into this podcast, brother? Let's do it. Okay, guys, so on today's show, we're very excited to have with us Dr. Joe and Amy Alton from Doom and Bloom Medical, among other things. Today, we're going to be discussing survival medicine and what we all need to know for disaster readiness. Thank you both for being here. How are you guys doing today? Well, I'm doing great, and thank you so much for having us on. Amy? Yes, I'm doing awesome, too. (laughs) I I feel strange, though. We always do our interviews 
next to each other. So we write notes to each other and we elbow each other. And I, I gesture like, yeah, don't she, say she that. She does most of the elbowing around here. <laughs> so it's really strange, guys. Thank you for inviting us. But yeah, I'm in a different room. So I'm, I feel alone. <laughs> I, I just want to say, guys, thank you so much for all you do for the preparedness community. If it wasn't for guys like you putting out all the information that you do, uh, I think our folks would be poorly served. So thanks so much for all you do. Absolutely. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Yeah, we you, are man. thrilled to have you guys on today. So, Craig, you want to bring us into this? Yeah, guys. So what we, what I thought we'd do first is just get a little background on you all. Uh, just share as much as you want on how you all met or whatever else you're comfortable sharing about what brought you to what you are doing today. Okay, well, I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as that old Dr. Bones, and I'm a retired but still actively licensed medical doctor. I'm a fellow of the American College of Surgeons, American College of OBGYN, member of the Wilderness Medical Society, and, and other, other groups that are interested in off-grid medicine. And Amy? Yes, I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner. Um, I was also a, well, I still am a certified nurse midwife. So I've delivered thousands of babies in my career. Uh, this is what we do full time teaching survival medicine. I love gardening. You'll see on our YouTube channel, some of our earlier videos, especially our container gardens, because we live in a neighborhood and I don't have several acres, sadly, to grow all the food I want to. So I'm stuck in containers. So um, I am an avid container gardener. And that's, um, I think, one of my favorite hobbies besides prepping. Right. We've also both been through the Master Gardener program through Florida's Agricultural Extension Office. We have our ham technician's license. We met. Uh, she's a, a midwife and I practice as an obstetrician early in my career. So that's how we met. We got together and I guess how we got to preparedness. Well, being down in South Florida, we've always been hurricane preppers. That is we always had more than the three days of supplies that most unprepared folks have. But I guess Hurricane Katrina is what probably opened our eyes. I mean, I helped out as part of a team after Hurricane Andrew down here in 92, and we saw a lot of destruction. But boy, seeing our national medical response fail during Katrina, that was a big thing to me. I mean, here you had hundreds of medical personnel, tons of equipment at the scene almost before the storm was over. And because of flooding, they couldn't reach a lot of folks that needed help. And it was then that our mission became to embed a medically prepared person into every family. I mean, to prevent deaths that might be avoided with the rapid action of good Samaritans and people, hopefully like you guys. That's really good. Now you all touched on just a little bit about how and when you saw the value of medical preparedness for survival versus simply practicing medicine, being a nurse. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because now you've got some books, you've got you've got a thriving website, a popular podcast, all of that. What really, I mean, was it Katrina that did it for you or were there more things involved in kind of moving you beyond uh, traditional medicine to this whole preparedness community thing? Well, I'm one of those geriatric folk. I'm well into my 60s at this point, and it was just time for me you know, at, at I reached the age that I wanted to retire and it was either learn to play golf 
or do something that might help somebody, maybe save a life somewhere down the road. And so that's what we decided to do is uh, we decided to chuck the golf clubs and get into preparedness because we really felt we could make a difference. There weren't a lot of medical professionals that were willing to put their license on the line and maybe think outside the box, speak outside the conventional medical wisdom uh, regarding what you have to do if you're going to be the medical person off the grid. Right. And also, um, you know, just a couple of particular incidents that really, um, I don't want to say made us crazy to get out there and teach, but was sort of the impetus. And that was definitely Katrina. Absolutely seeing all those folks um, sitting around on their roofs and their houses with hospitals that didn't have generators or they were overrun by gangs. Um, nobody was coming in to help them in the arena that these folks were stuck in. And that was really horrible. And that was on television. Andrew was not so televised because we didn't have a lot of cable. We didn't have internet connections at that point. So a lot of people forget about Andrew. For us, that started our hurricane preparedness. Katrina started us into, okay, now we need to teach other people. We need to figure out how we can take our professional education and put that through a filter and teach people who do other things, who who didn't go to medical school, who didn't become a nurse practitioner, folks that were just sort of our next door neighbors and my family. I don't have anybody in the medical profession in my family and they live far away. My kids, I have one in Brooklyn and one in Chicago now, you know, they needed to know these things. Um, so that was one of the things. The other thing that really kind of said, wow, we've got to do this even more, was some flu epidemics were really being publicized. And could this be worldwide? Could we have another Spanish flu? And if we did have something that transmitted quickly between folks that were just nearby each other, not necessarily coughing into each other's mouth or, you know, physically being within a couple of inches of each other, but sort of through the air on airplanes, trains. I mean, we have abilities to get from one side of the world to the other, you know, within just a short period of time. So people get on planes who don't know they're sick and now the whole plane is sick, but they don't know they're sick either. And then they might get on other planes or, you know, just... I, I could see a worldwide problem if we have something that's very strong. So that that would be the second thing I say that you know really got us motivated. So it sounds like one of the things just listening to you all, because you all are such, again, professionals, even before you came to disaster readiness medicine. Can you can you explain to both myself as well as our listeners what's the difference between survival medicine, like you all teach now? And what somebody like me would see as like emergency room medicine or just modern emergency medicine. Well, I'll tell you, it's as simple as what your goal is. What's your goal when you see somebody injured or ill on the street? You want to perform first aid. You want to stabilize that person. Then you want to get them to the next highest medical asset. We write and talk about scenarios where there is no higher medical asset than you. Situations where you have become the end of the line when it comes to whether that person recovers or doesn't. In true survival medicine, you're not just the guy stopping the bleeding with a tourniquet. You're the guy taking care of that wound from start to finish, deciding if it should be closed or left open, performing daily care on it. You're not just the guy placing a splint on a fracture. You're reducing that fracture if you have to, 
casting it if you need to, and following its progress until it's here healed. That means the buck stops with you. That's the difference between what the average citizen would expect in normal times. Just get that person to the next asset, next highest asset as soon as possible, or have to deal with it from beginning to end. That's really good. And that leads me to something that is dear to your heart because you've already mentioned it, but people that aren't familiar with what you guys are about uh, wouldn't have caught that. So I'm looking on the back of your Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease book. And on the back there, it says the Alton's are on mission. Would you guys like to tell everybody what your mission is? You mentioned this briefly before, and I think it's a perfect segue from what you you just said uh, with Craig's with regards to Craig's question about the difference between survival medicine and modern emergency care. The important thing in our main mission is to put a medically prepared person in every family. We want to instill a culture of medical preparedness in this country, especially among our younger generations. I mean, in these days of, oh, I don't know, active shooters, I want kids of a certain age to learn not just the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic. I want them to learn the four R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, and reduce hemorrhage. I want the average person to know what to do about injuries and illness when they come across a car accident or or even a, a or a zombie apocalypse. You can't do that without some education, without some training, without some supplies, some supplies. And we decided we could help with all of these. That's really good. So do you think, I, I wonder if people have this mindset and again, it's maybe it's a non-self-reliant mindset where if, if I get sick, if I get hurt, first thing I'm doing is going to the emergency room. How, one, how do we overcome that? And two, is do you really believe that accomplishing your mission to put a medically prepared person in every family is actually possible? Well, I think it is. I mean, I think that we can form an army of medics, educated, trained, and supplied that are held in reserve for when they are needed. I mean, that might be to just help a community after a disaster or it might help uh, to be be to help during an epidemic or just a mishap in, in the home or workplace, just somebody in every family. I mean, this is something that, okay, I'll admit, today, tomorrow, next week, next month, you're probably not going to be involved in a huge national, natural disaster, uh, hopefully an auto accident. You won't be involved in it, certainly a terror attack or society ending event. But over the course of your lifetime, think about this. The chances are not so small. If you think about a, a period of decades, and if you factor in your kids' lifetimes, well, you know, the chances become greater still. And one day you might just wish you had some knowledge about stopping hemorrhage or dealing with infection and injuries. And I think that in normal times, you shouldn't not go to the emergency room if you need to. If, if there is the miracle of modern, modern medicine, if there are modern medical facilities within your reach, certainly go out and seek qualified medical professionals to help you. However, that's not what we write about. We write about situations in which there are no doctors, in which there are no modern medical facilities. And what do you do as a head of household or a family member with some medical training in those situations? Right. Well, I just want to add one thing. So just to be clear, you know, a lot of people do read the book and they get some helpful hints. And maybe if something simple happens to them, they, they might be able to take care of themselves, especially 
the hemorrhaging. Um, we all know that after the Boston bombing, uh, hopefully everyone knows that there's um, a Stop the Bleed national campaign. And the government, believe it or not, wants people to learn how to stop bleeding, just like we learned CPR and hopefully how to use the um, AED on the wall. They want us to learn how to stop hemorrhaging because they understand that the average person walking around who might be a secretary or own a gas station or, or does something else could be the person standing there when something terrible happens. So although we are focused on, quote, survival medicine for longer term situations, these things that you learn can help immediately. I mean, it doesn't take but a few minutes for someone to lose all their blood. And if you know how to stop bleeding, which is very simple steps, you can save someone's life. And going back to whether you think we can accomplish the mission of having everyone prepared, because there's this national campaign and a more openness towards this first aid idea, I hope that in the future I see children from the beginning of school, age five, learn simple things like put, you know, cleaning a wound. If you get a scratch, you can go into the bathroom, use soap and water. Um, maybe mom has some little antiseptic wipes and you learn how to put those on and put a Band-Aid on. Simple things. And then that increases in through the maturity and the age of the child, what we can teach them so that maybe in later parts of high school, the, the images and the ideas might be a little bloodier, but they've they've desensitized themselves. So it's not a shock They're They've been taught that we need to learn how to take care of ourselves. There could be a situation where I'm kind of alone or with a group of people and we need to figure out what to do because that's actually reality. Think about Venezuelans right now. They probably never thought they'd be in this kind of situation, but you know, bad things happen to people. Hey, I just want to piggyback on what you said there, Amy, because I, I actually, I've been through TCCC about five times and I, I took stop the bleed for the first time last weekend. Awesome. And, and it was, I mean, I, I'd done basically everything we did in stop the bleed obviously several times through TCCC, but stop the bleed for those that are listening. And what Amy's describing is so incredibly true. It is so simple. It's not hard. The class is not disgusting. Uh, <laughs> right. every, every person I've ever seen that's taught the material has always been incredibly professional, really good at what they do. And uh, I just, I just want to piggyback on what she said and highly recommend it for anybody. You can find it rather easily. Just look up, stop the bleed anywhere. And, uh, and a good Sorry, I just wanted to mention we actually um, we have been teaching uh, Stop the Bleeding courses for I think I've been doing that for maybe eight years, way before the government got involved in this whatsoever. But uh, we are official certified Stop the Bleed instructors. Yes. Fantastic. Yep. That's yep. right. And yeah, that's good stuff. Yep. And you, Craig and Dave, are helping us by pointing out that this kind of course, that the ability to stop bleeding is not outside the range of the average citizen. Not That's that you're right. average citizens, you guys are highly trained, you know, but I think anybody can learn it. Even if you're in middle school, you can learn how to be effective in stopping the bleed. There's no doubt in my mind after going through it, it's, it's the, and the, and the reason I say that is the class that I was in was a cross section of average ordinary folks. 
I mean, we were doing attack med class or we were shooting afterwards. And so there was a new group of people that came in and shot weapons and what have you. But the stop the bleed course itself was again, just like you all are describing it's, it was shooters. It was um, people that work in schools. It was people that work in the corporate environment, have no, uh, no desire to carry a gun. I think a lot of people see stop the bleed as being an answer just for active shooter, active aggressor situations. And it's not, it's that car wreck that, that both of you all have mentioned. It's that for me here in Kentucky, I grew up a farm boy. It's that farm accident that happens. I mean, all these are simple reasons that average ordinary people could have the need for stop the bleed training without a doubt. Think about how many people on a daily basis cut themselves in the kitchen. Yeah. Every, every yeah, day. Exactly. Every day, you know? Sure. And that's the army of medics held in reserve for when they're needed. So why don't we go ahead and come up with, I think this is a great place to come up with a couple of things that people can do to move forward and helping at least one person in their family become medical medically prepared. What, what's maybe like one, two, three, or four simple solutions starting somebody who's hearing this for the first time and says, yes, I get it. I need to be medically prepared. I need to be able to take care of my family. How about some steps, guys? Some simple steps are just to get some general education, learn how the body works, learn what blood is, what, how much blood you have, what does it look like when you've lost blood? These are simple things that can, you can actually just Google most of, most of this stuff, but training, hands-on training, that's what you want to really, that's where you begin to become effective in being a medic, at least from my standpoint, it's certainly in survival situations. Definitely stop the bleed. I mean, I know I, I hate to keep pounding that drum, but you know, that would be one of the first things, of course, a CPR class. I mean, you just never know. Uh, and it includes choking, which can be a, an infant, you know, so you can learn a lot of things to help the general public. I, I don't think Starting that should be immediately jumping into, well, a catastrophe is going to happen and you have to learn how to set someone's leg. I mean, that that would just frustrate someone because it seems so advanced. So, again, um, like Joe said, learning about the body. I think there's a lot of people out there that didn't pay attention in health class, um, maybe didn't take anatomy and physiology in college. And so... They have an idea of how the body works. I, I think we have pretty intelligent people in this world, but maybe not some details that would be important. Like Joe said, how much blood you actually have. So if you see someone and you see some blood on the ground, you kind of can make a quick judgment of, okay, you know what? Forget direct pressure, which is part of stop the bleed class. Forget direct pressure. I need to put a tourniquet on this person. You know, we need to skip that step because I know how much blood they're supposed to be in the body and it's there's less of that than there should be. Sure. So go ahead, sweetie. I'm sorry. I was going to say, uh, as, as you say, tourniquet uh, using a tourniquet and applying it effectively is oftentimes the first course of action. Uh, Craig mentioned the TCC, a uh, TC three, that, that those guidelines rather are indeed mentioning that as a first course of action. 
Absolutely. So again, anatomy and physiology, learning what the body is, how it works, how it functions, taking the CPR class, learning how to stop choking, uh, you know, correct choking and uh, the stop the bleed class would be, you know, I would say my first steps. And if you can get through that and, and feel confident about just that group of things then you can start moving on to, you know, burns and telling whether something's a fracture or a sprain, you know, sort of, you know, advancing yourself as you go. But don't overwhelm yourself. And if you do have a problem with blood, um, Joe, can you t- talk to them a little bit just for a second of how to desensitize yourself? Because we this is a topic we've we've talked about in the past. Well, I think that desensitization is going to help prevent that paralysis that we have. We live in a, in a world of what they call normalcy bias. We assume that every day is going to happen in a certain way because it always has. And when we come across somebody that's injured or bleeding, we become, unless we're desensitized to it, we're paralyzed. A lot of people will just sit there and watch that person bleed. That person may have three minutes, five minutes left before they're beyond medical help. And so that that's important. And whatever works for you, I and mean, if it's watching a lot of gory movies, if it's watching uh, a lot of YouTube videos that that talk about or reality, re- right, exactly. These are the things that you need to do to just get desensitized. Know that you may be the person that makes the difference between life and death for an injured person. One other thing I would like to throw in here, guys, is I'm looking at this book that once we talk, I think it was Amy, maybe it was a month ago that we started talking about uh, having you guys on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Doing the podcast. Uh And I went through my books and I was looking at my first aid and medical books and I found this book called The Ultimate Survival Medicine Guide and I started looking through it and I was like, oh yeah, 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 this book, that's those guys. (laughs) And and this is this is actually a really concise, user-friendly book that takes you through physiology, medical supplies, skills you want to learn. Um, just so I, I, I highly recommend this book for people that are looking for a place to start. A lot of great diagrams in here of the body system. So this this may be a good starting point for people. Do you guys do you guys think out of all your books and resources that might be a good place to start? Well, that's our that's our abridged book. It certainly is a, a good start. Uh, we certainly want you, though, to learn about all sorts of different medical issues. There are less in the current the ultimate survival guide than our main book, which is now, gosh, it's in its 700 page third edition. So it may be a lot for some people. And so maybe starting with the smaller book is better. Yeah. So what in that regard, guys, what what sets your book apart from the typical first aid book that we can find on a bookshelf at Barnes and Noble or what have you? Well, I'll tell you, the because the entire book assumes that some disaster has occurred, you're the average citizen, you're now the highest medical asset left. So our book tells you in plain English how to be effective in that role. And that means that nowhere in our book does it tell you to go to the doctor or go to the hospital. That's one of the few medical books you're going to ever read that doesn't end each chapter with that, even where there is no doctor, which is a famous uh, survival medicine book, that that 
ends almost every chapter with get to the doctor, go to the right. hospital. But our <laughs> Tra- book assumes transport. Right, right. But our book assumes that these things, doctors and hospitals no longer exist and that you are just plain old on your own with whatever you happen to have in terms of supplies, knowledge, and training. That's really good. So you guys, since we're on the topic of natural remedies and traditional remedies, I noticed in your books that you have conventional medical first aid right alongside natural and even herbal remedies. Do you guys want to tell us why? That's right. You know, we write a lot about not just home uh, survival medicine. We write about homestead medicine, and that includes natural remedies. I mean, when your worry is maybe about three days or a week without power, you might not have to look in your backyard for plants with medicinal benefits. But a long-term event that knocks you off the grid, man, you better know exactly what plants in your area can help. No matter how much medicine you stockpile, If you believe that there may be a long-term event that could possibly happen in the future, you're eventually going to run out of all of the medicine that you stockpile, all the pharmaceuticals. So you need to learn to use all the tools in the woodshed. And that includes the natural remedies that our ancestors used to treat sickness and injuries. So we included a lot of those in the book. Whenever it was possible to put something in that I thought that we thought would uh, work to provide a medicinal benefit in the absence of other more advanced medications, well, you know, it's there. And it's important for everybody to consider putting together maybe a medicinal gardener. This is the master gardener in me speaking, but a medicinal herb garden, that would be a wise move for anybody who's interested in preparedness. And most of these things grow like weeds. Uh, Most of the time you're going to have trouble stopping these things from growing. You don't need a green thumb. And so I would definitely consider learning about the plants in your area, because it's different for depending on where you are, that would have a medicinal benefit that would be able to be used when something in your medicine cabinet runs out. And also um, another reason that I got into gardening was not only so I could maybe supplement our freeze-dried storage and our MRE storage with some fresh foods, but also to grow some of this medicine. So a lot of what I've done is replaced, we live in South Florida and, you know, grass and palm trees are not exactly going to sustain you. So (laughs) I've, I know, right. So I've actually against my HOA, uh, yanked up bushes here and there. And I have Arabica coffee growing around here. I have um, cardamom, which is in the ginger family, which loves South Florida. I can grow a lot of things. I I had a rosemary bush once that practically took over my yard. So think about what you can grow in your area. So you should learn as part of prepping what your grow zone area is. So I know I'm 10. So I look for things that I can grow that I don't have to fuss with. What I can't grow is basil. Basil hates this heat. Um, I have trouble with lavender. But a lot of people that aren't too much more north than I can probably grow this stuff beautifully. And they, I know I've, we've traveled across the country and lavender grows along the roads. And lavender is a wonderful medicinal um, herb So, or plant. So learn what you can grow. Plant it around your house. A lot of these are really beautiful plants. Um, and just incorporate it into your area. And then also, like Joe said, find out 
what's in the park near you or in the national forest nearby or in an empty lot that's close to you or in your backyard. Find out. And there are some really cool people across this country that specialize in teaching you wild edibles. And we've taken a couple wild edible courses for someone who specializes in Florida. And I think his name is Green Dean. But anyway, great guy. Um, they're usually a lot of fun. You get to taste this stuff. Sometimes they even cook with them at the end. Um, it is awesome. It's fun. It's educational. And certainly it's something you might need to use in the future. Just don't pick and eat the plants in the dog park. Whatever. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what, whatever whatever you do. Good, good point, <laughs> honey. Doubt. Good point. <laughs> Glad you threw that in there. That's for good. That's sure. <laughs> all right, y'all. So one of the things that you all were talking about earlier was this idea of dysentery and 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 actually hygiene being a major issue. Uh, I can see you know epidemic diseases being something that could come back in a you know a large large scale catastrophic situation. Is that, is that something we need to be concerned about? And if so, what, what kind of things should we be aware of and what can we do to, to help ourselves? Honey, I'm going to jump in just one second and then you can actually answer the question. I just want to mention that we actually have epidemic diseases right now in this country because of our homeless issues over in LA and San Diego and San Francisco and Portland in Seattle, they've got major problems with diseases, especially L.A. And so, honey, I'll let you finish the answer. <laughs> right, you're absolutely right. There is a typhus epidemic, and they've also found people with typhoid. These are two different diseases that ha- actually sort of look alike. Uh, but the, there are major issues that are related to the lack of hygiene and sanitation. There are major issues that occur as a result. You mentioned dysentery as a result of contaminated food and water. These are things that are going to be problems, much, much worse problems if we wind up getting knocked off the grid. Of course, there are always going to be epidemics of, let's say, viral influenza that always passes around, you know, comes around every once a year. But I see all the classic diseases that used to kill millions of people due to water and food contamination making a big comeback big time, as a matter of fact, in some areas, there's cholera, there's dysentery, as you mentioned, Campylobacter, Giardia, all these other things are going to be community-wide epidemics. And you're going to see things like tetanus, maybe a a few handful of cases of tetanus in the U.S. every year. You're going to see that become more common. You're going to be seeing uh, basically what you see in these large homeless communities in L.A. and elsewhere. If you look back at our past, you're going to see that there are a lot more insect-borne diseases, mosquito-borne diseases like malaria, dengue fever, or yellow fever. I visited uh, friends in New Orleans and looked back at some of the history there, and they used to have epidemics of all three of those diseases over the course of time back in the 1800s. Many of these were major epidemics, and a century ago, more than a century ago, and they're going to be that way again, especially if you don't watch out. What kind of things can we do if we're not in those areas to keep that from happening? Is that just something we, I mean, I know it's, it may be a, a large task to accomplish, but I can see just trying to prevent homelessness where we're at is something that could help. Oh, absolutely. I think that anything that you can do to keeps people 
it keeps people indoors and allows and, and, and make sure that you're trying to keep them clean is going to help. And anything that you can do to disinfect the water and make sure the food is not contaminated. Well, you know, you need to do it and you need to have more than one way to do it. Boiling water works best, according to the CDC, a, a minute of a good rolling boil. That'll do at sea level. You add three minutes above 2000 meters. That's about 6,500 feet elevation. Of course, bleach 12 drops a gallon, let's say that will work fine, as well as iodine tablets or 16 drops of iodine tincture. Wait, just make sure you wait a good 30 minutes to let these two things work their magic. UV radiation in the form of direct sunlight uh, for six to eight hours, maybe that works well. Make sure you use a, a, clean, a clear container, filter out particulates so that the water doesn't appear cloudy. Things like mini Sawyers or life straws are always useful items. And in, in these kinds of situations. I just want to mention something about the homeless problem. I, I, we can't solve it here on this podcast. I think it needs a team of experts. But one thing I do want to mention to folks that are listening, and you know, it's easy for us to look at the television and see all these people who are dirty and, you know, disheveled and, and, and maybe we think, okay, that person is probably on drugs or mentally ill. And if that's true, we need to help them. I believe that the drug problem is a mental problem. I don't think people just start doing drugs usually because, gee, this sounds fun. I think they have mental problems. They have stress. They have family issues, maybe a divorce, a loss of a child, whatever it is, they feel alone or isolated and they start doing drugs to escape from reality. I think we need to have our mental health system just absolutely everywhere on every street corner. We need to have free mental health. And I don't mean healthcare for all and all that kind of, but I'm, but specifically mental health. It needs to be everywhere. These folks need help. Some of them just have mental issues. And maybe they need to have a special place for them to live under supervision. But we need to have more homeless shelters. We need to have more mental health. And we need to have clean, safe places for those people to live, not on the streets. It's sad and it's terrible that we have this problem in America. Guys, I'm going to go off script here a little bit and off our outline. And um, let me just ask you about this opi opioid epidemic. Uh, what are your thoughts and what, how's that contributing to some of the multiplications of problems that we're seeing here in the U.S.? Do you guys care to go there? Well, I I'm definitely will give you my opinion. I think that the opioid epidemic is a major issue. It has killed more people than you can imagine just thousands and thousands of people. And the funny thing is that we keep continuing to try to con try to regulate or or ban substances that could, could actually help. There's something called kratom. I don't know. Have you guys ever heard of that? K-R-A-T-O-M. Okay. Well, that is a plant. It's actually related to the coffee plant that is in the coffee family that actually binds with the opiate receptors in your body without being an opiate. And so you actually get some of the benefits or, or some of the, uh, you don't get high really, but you, you do get sort of mellow on it and it actually decreases your desire for heroin and, and other major 
bad drugs. And so I, and the funny thing is that the FDA was trying to ban that a, a year and a half ago, something like that. And sure enough, there were 50 congressmen as, as a result of an outcry from uh, their constituents that actually wrote a letter to the FDA asking them not to ban Kratom and, and its byproducts because it was actually preventing people from dying. There, there was, I think, one case of in, in the last two or three years, I think there's been one case with somebody dying from Kratom, and that's with somebody who was taking Kratom and heroin. At the same time, however, there have been thousands of people that have died from major opiates like uh, heroin and things like that. And we can do something about it by maybe researching more some of these alternative therapies and see if they might help some people, even if they help some people. And if you just go on YouTube, look up K-R-A-T-O-M and you'll see tons of testimonials about what it has done for a lot of people. It really has saved a lot of people's lives. Absolutely. Now, honey, I appreciate you talking about something that could help people get off of these things. But I want to go back to the start of this. And I really have to blame Big Pharma. They pushed and pushed these pills. These pills originally were supposed to be short-term use. They were supposed to be used for a week or two weeks. And what happened was the pharmaceutical companies didn't educate the providers who were writing the prescriptions that these were not supposed to be used for a month, two months, three months. They knew that they were highly addicted. They knew this. Didn't share that information and that research with the people who were writing the prescriptions. And so within a short period of time, the patients became addicted. So now the doctor who probably wasn't educated and was just too busy to even read the research that might have been given to him or her is now writing prescriptions because the person is saying, oh, I'm still in pain. I'm still in pain. I'm still in pain. When it really was an addiction. And I think it took a long time for the smart ethical doctors to realize that hey, this is this, this person can't possibly still be in pain. This is an addiction. And they probably stopped writing it. But you know what those patients did was they went to these pill clinics and they, they started getting large prescriptions. Well, now the person who's addicted needs to buy the pills because the insurance isn't going to pay for it or they lost their job because of the addiction. And now they're selling them. And so this whole cycle of I'm addicted, now I'm selling it, now you've got drug dealers, you've got pill clinics. It just exploded, especially, I believe, Kentucky is one of the worst problems for this. And Tennessee is is maybe second, but it is horrible. It is really, really bad. Um, it's, it's a wheel or a snowball that's that's running down the mountain. It's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I'm not sure that telling ethical doctors that they can't write prescriptions anymore for the people they know who are actually in pain, who might have cancer or had a car accident and they've got back problems. They're people with serious problems that need these pills to tell them, oh, you can't write these prescriptions anymore or you're going to get in trouble is not the solution. We need to get rid of the pain clinics. We need to get people off these pills. And like I said about mental health, this, this is, includes drug treatment. We need to have drug treatment centers, real ones, not fake ones, because those there are scammers out there. But we need to really put money 
an effort towards getting people off pills because it's neighbors, it's sisters, it's brothers, it's it's coworkers, people you don't think or know are on these kinds of things. They're doing them before work, during work, after work, on weekends, and it's affecting parents. It's affecting teenagers. It's it's, it's absolutely horrible and and I really feel so strongly that we need to put money towards helping these people. I'm I'm with you. I'm here in Kentucky, so I see it all the time on a regular basis and and I'm I'm glad you're passionate about it, but it's it's one of those things that we need to be doing something about and and that's one of the reasons I asked the question. I really appreciate you offering your wisdom on that. Uh, I do want to steer us back to where uh we we start a good conversation and I think it can take us to an important topic which is your latest book uh on antibiotics and you all are almost synonymous in my opinion for for over a decade now on fish antibiotics and how we can utilize those. And what, what led you all to recommend that to those that do disaster readiness? And has there been any controversy with that? And how, what, what does your book offer us is what I want to get at eventually. Well, I'll tell you that it's certainly outside the medical, uh, conventional medical wisdom, but I, we realized that a lot of people would die from infections because of the lack of antibiotics, just like they did before antibiotics were developed. There are a lot of, if you just go into any graveyard in Tennessee or Kentucky, and you see all these little gravestones with lambs on them and things like that. These are people, people or children that died probably from common childhood illnesses, things like strep throat actually could could have killed you way back then because there were no antibiotics. I mean, if you saw the History Channel uh, program after Armageddon, you'd see how a family, even with a medical professional as the head of the household, can get in trouble off the grid. In this show, After Armageddon, a paramedic and his family get caught in a pandemic of some sort. They have to hit the road. They find a survival community that could use a medical guy, but even he has to get his hands dirty and he has to grow some food. He cuts his hand because he's doing stuff he's not accustomed to, notices the signs of infection, but the medical storage didn't have any antibiotics. The paramedic's infection gets worse. He looks at it. He knows that it's spreading, can't do a thing about it. Soon enough, it goes into his bloodstream and it kills him. This is the kind of avoidable death that would occur if preparedness folk didn't have antibiotics in their medical storage, but how to get medicine that is normally prescription only. I mean, we're unusual in that we're not only medical professionals, but we've bred and fa- uh, raised fish, everything from betas to tilapia in ponds and tanks. We have a pet African gray parrot and certainly have dealt with those issues uh, that relate to our pet birds. When a human patient had an infection that could be treated with antibiotics, we'd give them, say, amoxicillin. When a fish had thin rot or some other bacterial infection of fish, we'd give them something called fish mox. We never thought twice about it for years. Then we became interested in medical preparedness and realized that lives could be saved in survival scenarios if antibiotics, not part of your typical medical kit, right, were available. We looked at the bottle of fish box. There was only one ingredient, amoxicillin, 500 milligrams. There was nothing there to make your scale shinier, your feathers brighter. Also, it was only produced in human dosages. Only producing human dosages. Why does my guppy need the same dose <laughs> of amoxicillin as you do, Craig, or you do, Dave? My goodness. 
And back then they didn't label it with instructions. So it seemed you put the same amount in a fishbowl as you would in a, gosh, a 200 gallon aquarium. And so finally we did the acid test. We opened a bottle of human amoxicillin made by Deva Pharmaceuticals, D-A-V-A. You can look it up. And it's a red and pink capsule with the numbers and letters WC731 on it. We opened up a bottle of fish mox, 500 milligrams is a red and pink capsule with the numbers and letters seven WC731 on it. In other words, it was identical. We found 12 different antibiotics like that, all produced for the fish or bird trade and all produced in only human doses and exactly identical to their human counterpart. So after a decade of writing about fish and bird antibiotics, well, you know, we saw a lot of people either had them or were planning to get them for their medical storage, or they didn't know how to use them, or at least use them wisely. We figured that we could teach people to learn to recognize infectious diseases that could be treated with antibiotics. In other words, bacterial infections, parasitic infections, infections that weren't viral. An antibiotic does not kill viruses. And we could teach people which antibiotics and what doses can be used for which infections. And so that helps the survival medic have a better chance of saving lives if they're knocked off the grid. I also We also wanted people to know how antibiotics work and, and maybe most importantly that antibiotics aren't candy. They should only be used when absolutely necessary, but when used wisely in survival scenarios, they will save lives, have no doubt. And so we put that, I just want to, me- I don't know if I mentioned the name of our book is Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. <laughs> the, I, and I should, have, I should probably do that. I should probably do that. <laughs> they, no, it's my fault. The, the Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. There and you go. I just want to say one more thing. If you don't believe us, that's fine. Buy one bottle. Buy a Buy 10 tablets of one of these antibiotics that we mentioned. And by the way, all of just about 99% of the information that's in our book is on our website. So we have it for free. The reason Joe and I write books is in case you don't have the internet. If you're in a place that just had a disaster or it happens where you live, you cannot Google everything if you don't have electricity. I know it's You'd like to, but you can't. So that's why you have books. So we put all of the information in the books. The Survival Medicine Handbook, everything that you see in that is on our website. So it is out there for free. Essentially, what we've done is taken hundreds of our articles and we made them into a book. That's the Survival Medicine Handbook. We took a couple of hundred articles that specifically address infectious disease and antibiotics and we put them in, in one smaller book called Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. And this is an easier way for people to put together, to access all the information in a concentrated fashion. Right. It's organized. You can get it when there's no electricity. Absolutely. But going back to the the fish antibiotics, so people are, okay, you got somebody listening. They say, I have, they, these people must be absolutely crazy. Buy a bottle. <laughs> right, right. Cookie, cookie. Buy a small bottle. It costs you a few dollars. Open it up and go on uh, pills.com or drugs.com. One of those pill identification websites, which exist because if you go to Granny's house and she's got a bowl of different colored, different size pills and capsules, and you have no idea what she's supposed to take or even what, what, organization they should be in or what they are you can take 
a pill or capsule, go on these, put the color, put the letters, the markings, the size, if it's capsule, if it's a tablet, and it will tell you not only what it is, who made it and who it's for. And I will stake my life because I own all of them myself because I wouldn't talk to people about things that I not only have, but have taken. I don't recommend that for others, but I won't write a book unless I have proven that what I'm saying is true. So check it out for yourself. It will say, if you buy the fish mox, a moxicillin, it will tell you who made that capsule. And it is not a fish company. It is a human pharmaceutical company that made that. Right. They just repackage it into a different bottle, which has a picture of a fish or a bird a slap on it. A new, right. Yeah, there you go. Slap a new label on it. <laughs> and and our, uh, our listeners and our readers who are in the pharmacy profession have backed us up uh, on many oh, occasions. So this is thousands this of is, times. These are not the ramblings of some old man drooling on his shoes like Craig. <laughs> not, These are. This is, <laughs> although yet, I do, I, although not I do, yet. I do a lot of that actually. No, you don't. Oh, a little. <laughs> <laughs> you, okay, maybe could when you, you're sleeping. Uh, could you get me a bowl of gruel, please? I need oh some porridge. Gosh. Your your oatmeal's <laughs> cooking, honey. Don't oh, worry. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so I have a question that goes right along with this, and that is oh. expiration dates on medicine and, and the like. Is that something? Mm-hmm. What What do we need to know about that? Well, I am so glad you asked. Uh, <laughs> well, hey, I, can, I am well, here to serve, Joe. I'm there here you to go. Serve. I love it. I love you're, it. You're pit, You're pitching him softballs, man. You, you guys, you guys, you guys are the best. Well, this is what one of our big topics here. That's right. One of our earliest articles was about expiration dates. Actually, uh, yep. James James Wesley Rawls was kind enough to publish it in Survival Blog way back, I think, in two thousand and nine or so. Yeah, July. All right, and expiration dates. Well, you remember the month? Wow. Uh, expiration dates were first mandated by the government in nineteen seventy nine. Before then, you never drug companies didn't have to put an expiration date on at all. But what are they? They represent the last date that a pharmaceutical company will guarantee their product to be 100% potent. Now, that doesn't mean that the medicine won't work if you use it the following week or month, or that you'll grow a horn in the middle of your forehead if you use it. It's going to mean that it actually means that it is fine. It's just beyond where they particularly want to guarantee it. So most medicines in pill or capsule form, they're still good sometimes years after the expiration dates. Now, that's another crazy thing that this old country doctor in his rocking chair here will tell you. Why? How could I possibly say something like that? When, I mean, the medical establishment tells you, if you just go onto any medical website, it'll tell you to toss expired medicines as soon as they expire. And that's because the government agrees with me. We have warehouses throughout the country with large quantities of drugs that are used in national medical emergencies. In the past, when the expiration dates for these medicines came around, out came the forklifts and tens of millions of dollars of various drugs went right in the trash. Now, at one point, even the government realized this might be wasteful. So the Department of Defense conducted a study called the Shelf Life Extension Program, SLEP. They tested 122 drugs used in disasters and found that most in pill or capsule form retained their potency and were safe for 2 to 12 years after the expiration date. 
Now, that goes for pill or capsule form. Drugs in liquid form did not, did not fare so well. So from if it's a pill or a capsule, you know, honestly, in normal times, call your doctor, get fresh prescriptions. Why not? If the med- if modern medicine's there and it's accessible, you should use it. But you might consider holding off on tossing those expired meds, though. They might be all you have. And as long as you store them in dry, dark, and cool conditions, well, they probably will last a lot longer than what it says on the bottle. All right, I'm going to take a, a big detour now. That's because that's really good information. Because uh, I was just thinking about when we first met in Louisville at a prepper show. One of the classes that you all were teaching there was suturing and wound closure, and you had a real good discussion on wounds and when they should stay open and when they should be closed. And I would love to have you all share that with our listeners here as well. Well, absolutely. What hat? Thank you, Craig. That's, that's you know you are giving me some pretty awesome questions, and I appreciate it. Now, he's this guy is great. Now, now listen. When when a laceration occurs, our body's natural armor, right, is that is our skin. It is breached, and bacteria, even species that are normal inhabitants, you have bacteria that live on your skin. You are your own ecosystem, and you have bacteria that's supposed to be actually on your skin. But the problem is, is when there is a laceration or a cut, then that bacteria can get a free ticket into the rest of your body. And that's a problem because microbes that are harmless outside the body could be very life-threatening inside the body. So it only makes common sense that you want to close a cut to speed healing and and prevent infection, certainly. Uh, But there's a lot of controversy as to whether or not a wound should be closed in an off-grid setting. Now, when and why would you choose to close a wound and what method should you use? Of course, Lacerations can be closed with sutures, with staples, tapes, medical superglues like Dermabond, or even industrial superglue. If you use the industrial superglue, if you use the gel, that actually works just fine. The only difference is the prescription stuff, the Dermabond. It costs about 50 bucks a shot, but it does tolerate getting wet better than just industrial superglue. By the way, some people do react against uh, industrial superglue to test. You, the medic should be testing each one of their people in their survival group by putting a dot of superglue on the inside of a forearm, see what happens over the next 24 hours and see if that area becomes red and irritated. If it doesn't, it actually is perfectly fine to use if that's the case. Now, how do I know this? Because there are a lot of folks that don't have, a lot of countries, honestly, that don't have two nickels to rub together. And sure enough, in Cuba, they use industrial superglue to close thousands of lacerations every year. Now, the question is, what are you trying to do by closing a wound? Basically, your goals are simple. You're closing wounds to to repair the defect in your your body's armor, to eliminate pockets of contaminated air or fluid under the skin, which could lead to infection and promote healing. Now, a well-approximated wound will have less scarring as well. That's not so important to me because I'm obviously talking about survival. And so scarring isn't, cosmetic results aren't as important to me as a good healed wound. Now, it sounds like all wounds should be closed, right? But closing a wound that should be left open can do a lot more harm than good. It could put your patient's life at risk. I I remember a girl in Georgia, you might have read about this a few years ago. She fell from a zip line, was taken to the local emergency room, and they just whipped out the stapler and put 22 staples in, closed a big laceration in her thigh. 
But unfortunately, the wound had that dangerous flesh-eating bacteria in it, caused an infection, spread throughout her body, eventually had to have not only that leg amputated, but both of her hands. That's how terrible this infection was. And part of the other leg, and her name was Amy. Right. I'll never I'll never forget that one. Yes, that's true. So, I mean, the decision, to, you're absolutely right, Hunt. The, the decision to close a wound is not an automatic one. It got, you have to think about several factors. And the most important is whether you're dealing with a clean or a dirty wound. And most wounds you're going to encounter off the grid, that's going to be dirty. If you They're, they're going to be dirty. So if you try to close the dirty wound, such as a gunshot, you'll have sequestered bacteria, bits of clothing, dirt, all sorts of stuff into your body. And in a short period of time, you may show signs of infection. An infected wound appears red, swollen, shiny. It'll be warm to the touch. And the infection, if it's not treated with, for example, antibiotics, may spread to the bloodstream and, be, and could kill you. Uh, it's diff I think it's going to be really difficult for our survival medics to fight the urge to close the wound because leaving the wound... All right. I mean, because leaving the wound open is going to be scary for them to treat because they don't do it on a daily basis. But if you leave the wound open, that's going to allow you to clean the inside frequently enough so to see the healing process. That's a process called granulation. And it allows the drainage out of inflammatory fluid. I mean, in the Plus, start... Yes, go ahead. Right. Plus, it allows the medical provider or the medic to see what's going on inside. So you can see exactly is there healing tissue do i need to give more antibiotics what do i need to do to this closing the top surface of that you're basically hiding what's going on underneath so something really bad can happen before you even know it so you know paying attention to how someone got injured what might have gotten in it was were they cut by something they were just using to butcher an animal um but basically i i believe like joe said that 99% of wounds that happen in survival situations where there's no hospital, there's no medical staff, there's no unlimited treatment methods available, that you should pretty much keep these wounds open. And your your best um, method to fight infection is going to be in the initial cleaning. Not gentle cleaning, but aggressive cleaning. So prevention is always... You know, an ounce of prevention is a pound of cure. Cleaning a wound properly and not closing it is going to be your best bet. So it's right. going to have to be scrubbed. So you, when you're using water and you need to clean it out, you don't want to, you know, sort of gently let water run on this. If you can have um, a plunger, a syringe, some sort of force of water that helps to jet out Things that you can't see, it might look clean, but you you know you can't see bacteria. Um, you need to clean and clean and clean. You might have to get some gauze and wet the gauze and give it a little scrubbing. You might have to pick things out. This is not going to be pleasant for the patient. They're going to have to grin and bear it. Maybe that Jack Daniels will come in handy at that point too. Um, yeah, but but, but a strong aggressive cleaning more than you even would do nowadays would probably help prevent you from having to use up those antibiotics that you have as precious storage. So you're going to have to clean better than we do now for wounds because we don't have triple antibiotics sitting in our first aid kit then. We have it now, but we might not have it then. So you're going to have to be very aggressive with cleaning, I think. 
Now, very quickly, some considerations when deciding whether or not to close the wound besides just clean and dirty. Is it a simple laceration, a straight, thin cut on the skin, or is it an avulsion? An avulsion is where areas of the skin are torn out or hanging flaps, That uh, something like a shrapnel wound, for example. If the edges of the skin are so far apart they can't be stitched together without a lot of pressure, well, the wound should be left open. The wound, another reason is if it's been open for more than about eight hours. Why? Even the air has bacteria, and there's a good chance that they've already colonized the wound by that time. So if it's somebody was out in the field, come back two days after their injury, well, that should be left open. Now, let's say you're certain the wound's clean. It's less than eight hours old. This is what you should do uh, to, uh, when you should decide, rather, to close a wound. Lacerations that are long or deep or through various layers, including muscle, for example, they might, might need closure. The exception would be, let's say, a puncture wound from an animal bite. These bites are, wow, loaded, really loaded dirty, yep. with bacteria, and they should be kept open if you're off the grid. Now, cat bites are worse than dog bites, by the way, when it comes to infection. And interestingly enough, dog bites and cat bites are both worse than snake bite when it comes to infection. Of course, there's venom in snake bites. That is its own problem. Uh, also, when the wound is located over a joint, you probably have to close it. When I say close it, I mean with sutures or staples, not just glue or steri strips because they are not strong enough to prevent the wound from opening up because of all the constant stress that a joint would have. So that's something that's important. And of course, uh, if a wound gapes open, but loosely enough that it can be closed without undue pressure, then you should close it. Guys, this is all fantastic. And I have to admit, Craig asks the best questions. He does. <laughs> he is the bomb. You are. You guys are both the bomb, I'll tell you. It, it's a good team. <laughs> so what I would like to do, and I, I'm just going to say this right now. Um, please come back. I have a thousand other questions for you guys. And I'm sure Craig does too. This has been, and we have a, and we have a million different answers. Yes. <laughs> well, that, that's bad. That sounds like we have a different answer every time. <laughs> <laughs> so what I would, what I would like to do, I'm going to cherry pick some lightning round questions here and uh -oh. let's try and keep our answers to 10 to 15 seconds each and then we'll see how this, we'll, we'll see how we'll that try. goes the amount, we'll, try. we'll try the number of these lightning round questions will depend on how long your answers are and then what we'll do just to prepare your okay. minds right now i like to leave people with uh two or three action steps so they can uh just begin today to be more medically prepared for tomorrow so we'll hit that after the lightning round you ready for the lightning okay. round all right, who's going to go first have... out of you two? You can hit me. <laughs> hit me. Okay, Wh what are the three most important items to have in your survival medical kit? Well, so I'm going to say, okay. uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say tra tra trauma supplies, wound care, and orthopedic care. I say uh, trauma supplies, uh, burn, uh, burn supplies also, and and. Honestly, antibiotics. If you're going to be the long-term medic, if it's a short-term thing, then I, I totally agree with Amy. All right. Here's one for you guys. Is a daily glass of wine healthy? 
Well, Amy will say so. <laughs> did you say? A, did, and, and, wait, wait. I, and and two quick, and two are wait, twice wait. as healthy, right, hon? <laughs> no, no. My question is: I'm Did kidding. you say a gl- a glass or a bottle? <laughs> <laughs> I I think a glass of wine is healthy. I don't have research. I can't prove it, but I will tell you that I my grandfather. It wasn't wine. It was a little stronger than wine, but he had a little shot in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. And that guy lived to late 80s, which is really long for um, a, red, a male. A male. By <laughs> so the way, red, red, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> red wine has flavonoids that they're very, very healthy. And it's something that uh, it's certainly not a bad idea. And resveratrol, I think it's called. Resveratrol. That's correct. Yep. What is the number one biggest survival threat to we, that we need to be aware of today? The well, health survival threat. Very simple. Very simple. It's food and water contamination. Honestly, uh, I think that it's so important to make sure that you have clean water, that you have properly prepared food. In good times or bad times, you have to have those things. You have to have clean water, and you have to have safe food to eat. If you don't, then you're going to get sick. Period. Iodine or hydrogen peroxide for wound care or something else? Uh, I, iodine. Iodine. Uh, there are studies uh, that have shown that it works great. Hydrogen peroxide is fine for the first time, but it's cytotoxic, which means every time you use it after that, it could be killing some of the new baby skins, uh, body cells. So it's cytotoxic. You don't want to use it after that. So if that's all you've got, the first time's okay. However, the um, betadine is is not going to do that with subsequent daily cleaners. wound care. And you can dilute the betadine out. It doesn't have to be full strength. Is coffee or dark chocolate good for you? Or is this a myth that comes from people who simply love coffee and dark chocolate? <laughs> Namely both, David. Yeah. <laughs> both, both of these have uh, studies that say they say different things is coffee is supposed to be good to help uh, prevent uh, Alzheimer's disease and things like that. Uh, dark chocolate it also is th- it thought to have similar benefits, but but there you'll find studies that show there's not m- there's not really much of an effect one way or another. Of course, uh, caffeine in general, if you take too much of it, you could start having nerve issues. Some people have tremors and things like that. So, I mean, you should everything in moderation. If you could only have one food item in a survival situation, what would you choose? Oh, you mean like eat every day? Yes. Oh, uh, well, it's supposedly rice and beans is supposed to be, you know, the most comprehensive, but I'd like to have bacon. <laughs> yeah. bacon <laughs> i'm going with bacon I, Pro- i'm gonna have to find me some hogs to raise so. Pro- Pro- i say i say protein and uh i can't i you your answer honey was the absolute best i've ever heard about to, to that question absolutely bacon, bacon goes with everything even dark even dark chocolate yeah there you go Biohacking and genetically weaponizing diseases. Is this fact or potential fiction? No, it is absolute fact. You can do this, whether somebody's doing it or not. You can't ask them. If you ask them, they'll deny it. But indeed, Russia was uh, trying to weaponize smallpox 
after 1980, after the last reported case was, I think, in 1970 something. 1980, the world decided to destroy all the remaining uh, smallpox virus samples that they had. And it turned out that the Russians did not. And so it's very possible that some of it got out. There is a gene editing tool known as CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R. You can look it up. It indeed uh, is in, has been successful in, in editing viruses. One virus that actually causes um, a disease in oranges in Florida, they actually have, a, it, it's a bacterial disease, but they've edited a virus that eats the bacteria and uh, they're using it uh, for that purpose. And if they can use it for that, they can use it for just about anything. I definitely think that that is a, uh, uh, an issue with regards to bio weapon, uh, bio uh, warfare. Wow. You guys did great. <laughs> You're not going to ask me about GMO foods. I'm very upset. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll ask you, I'll ask you one more, but not that one. We'll save that for next time. Okay. Cause I think your answer is going to be too long. <laughs> way, way, way too long. And it, I'm just going to say one word about that evil Monsanto. And now we can move on. <laughs> Monsanto is not the sponsor of today's program. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, last, last lightning round question. What is the most healthy diet? Paleo, vegan, vegetarian, keto, American, or moderation? (laughs) I'm going to say moderation. And I'm going to say this because every one of those diets you just mentioned work for some people, but they don't work for everybody. So unfortunately, you have to find what works for you. And... Sadly, it probably is just moderation and exercise. I think it's just different for some people. Some people more than others. My brother uh, does Atkins diets and he, yep. he, he swears by it. There are other people that are vegans and vegetarians. They we do know find- paleo guys. We, Jack's a paleo guy, honey. Yeah, Jack Spirko, you know? our good friend. So it just depends. That's really good. Okay. So to take us out of here, let's... Just talk about a few action steps, things that people can begin to do today to prepare medically for tomorrow. Maybe three things. Well, number one, get off of sugar and refined foods because you're not going to have, first off, they're not healthy for you. And and number two, you're not going to have them unless, of course, unless you're us, we actually have sugar cane growing in our backyard here. But uh, wait, wait, honey, honey, you're answering the wrong question. You're answering how what? to live more healthy. He wants to say he asked you Avoid. three way, three ways to become more medically prepared. Oh, medically today. prepared. Oh, OK. I thought. Yes. It, OK. Well, no. Number medically one, prepared. very simple. Get education, get training, get supplies. So you can find uh, uh, Amy has a wonderful line of medical kits at our store at uh, our website, doomandbloom.net. Check those out that we publish the lists of their contents freely so you know doesn't mean you have to buy our kits but get the stuff in the kits and next time when we have you guys on we'll ask you one of the other action step questions <laughs> like <laughs> what, what do we like what are three things we can do to live a more healthy life today there you go. go ahead joe yeah, go ahead and like, do that anyway you have right. one there all right. Simple. Get, stay away from sugar and refined foods. You're not going to have them in a survival setting, and you might as and they're unhealthy, so might as well get off them now. Exercise. Stay within a normal weight for your height and age. That's very important. And for goodness' sake, learn how your body works. And if you can, you'll be not only a healthier person, but you'll be more effective as a medic in times of trouble. 
All right, you all. So I have I have three words to describe this event that we've had together over the last hour or so. Educational, enriched, and entertained. You all have been fantastic. Oh, <laughs> thank you. We yeah, are so great. passionate about what we do. Honestly. Oh, I can tell. This is awesome. I, I, we live, eat, and breathe this. This is not like a, oh, let's try to do something today. It is wake up, do it, do it, do it. Okay, it's midnight. All right. Saturday, Sunday. <laughs> we don't, we're not going out having fun. This is how we have fun. We love to teach. Just love it. With that Absolutely. said, what's the best way that people can connect with you all? Social media, website, tell us about all of it. Your books, everything. Oh, boy. We're up Hun, to you, you. You got the list there, bud. I do. I have. We, <laughs> we have so many ways that you can connect with us, and we certainly hope that you will uh, head to doomandbloom.net. You will find over a thousand articles, podcasts, and videos on our website at, at doomandbloom.net. We are also uh, our YouTube channel is Dr. Bones, Doctor Bones, Nurse Amy. Our podcast is Survival Medicine. Uh, the Survival Medicine Hour. That's on Blog Talk Radio. You'll find it everywhere, though. Uh, our books are the Survival Medicine Handbook, the Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. Just uh, past 100,000 books sold on, the, on that one. Our new book is Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. Uh, we have other books. You'll find them all on Amazon and on our website. Uh, also, don't forget to read our articles in Survivor's Edge, American Survival Guide, Backwoods Home. And you can even check out our board game, Doom and Bloom Survival. Oh, yeah. We forgot to even oh, mention that. We yeah. created we created an entire board game and did a Kickstarter for it. That's right. It's, oh. it's a full-on board game. Yeah, we didn't even mention that. Okay, so I want to just say real quickly, the top of doomandbloom.net has the little icon links to everything, to YouTube, to um, Instagram, to, um, God, I'm forgetting, Twitter, to, <laughs> to everything, to the radio show. So there's little icons. So if you forgot all of those things we said, doomandbloom.net will take you anywhere you want to go. That is amazing. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. This has been great. And please come, come back again. We're, oh, we'd be happy to. We'd be happy Just let to. us and, know. And thank you so much uh, again for having us on and also for everything that you guys do. Okay, Craig, would you please take us out of here? So everybody subscribe to the podcast now. It is free to do so. That ensures you don't miss out on this or any episodes. Many thanks to each of you for listening who have already done that. You are fantastic. And if you enjoy the podcast, please share it with your friends and go over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. Click the link in the description to get all the links we have mentioned in the show today. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Survival Show Podcast. Keep it simple, be positive, and stay sharp.